Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We hope your 2021 is going as well as can be hoped. We've got some great articles for you today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Our first link comes from Science Focused, which is the home of BBC Science Focus magazine. What is a mad caterpillar? Any guesses? Hmm. Something to do with Alice in Wonderland, but that was a mad hatter and a caterpillar <laughs> separately. So it's, like, it's their love child. That's what I'm going to guess. A Greek pillar with a silly hat and googly eyes. Oh, I would like to see a mock-up of that. Maybe if we put a request on Reddit or something. <laughs> well, according to Science Focus, a mad caterpillar is a species of caterpillar that keeps its molted heads piled up on its actual head. Like wow. the shed Wait. the shed skin of its previous heads? Yeah, imagine those Russian nesting dolls, but instead of laying them out horizontally, they're actually piled on top of one another and get smaller as they go up. <laughs> it's a special species that lives in New Zealand and Australia, but it's actually a serious pest of eucalyptus trees. So it munches the leaves down to the veins, which has also given it another nickname name gum leaf skeletonizer hmm. but apparently just like all caterpillars they must regularly shed its exoskeleton in order to grow i didn't realize that all caterpillars did this i know that yeah. they, you know will cocoon and do that but unlike other larvae it does not discard the empty head casings so it's it's like a little pyramid of dead skulls on top of its head. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome looking. Yeah, that's metal. I'm into it. It is super metal, and it has kind of like a tiki sort of flair to it, just based on the arrangement. But <laughs> scientists think that the unlikely edifice may be anchored by a crown of sticky hairs, and the caterpillars will actually use this protruding headgear to swat predators like stink bugs away. So it's like swinging it like some sort of halberd. <laughs> you know, I can only assume because this is a super short article and they just kind of <laughs> toss that out there like, hey, they use this protruding headgear to swat predators. But yeah, I think in the absence of information, I'm going to assume that it's true. <laughs> yeah, this has very strong old man hiding sword in cane energy to me. <laughs> yeah. I love yeah. it. <laughs> Next link. Next link. link. This article comes to us from popularmechanics.com, and it's titled The Truth About the Betts Mystery Sphere Conspiracy Theory. Okay. I'm not aware of that conspiracy yeah, theory. Yeah, <laughs> I was not aware of this one either, so it was a little bit new to me, but it's basically this giant steel ball that a Florida family found on their property in 1974, and it may or may not be a piece of alien technology. <gasps> so <laughs> everything is really maybe or maybe not alien technology. That's very well, the true. The definition of alien here just means like unknown foreign. Or do uh, they mean like extraterrestrial outer space? I think space they alien? actually mean extraterrestrial. Yes. <laughs> so after a fire destroyed their property in March 1974, the Betts family found the bizarre metal sphere in their yard and believed at first it was just a historic cannonball mm. from Florida's Renaissance era Spanish colonizers. Okay. But the sphere was totally clean, free of corrosion and shiny and presumably, you know, not marked by fire. 
And weaponry in the Spanish colonial time period would have been iron or stone, not stainless steel or this silver plate. And their accounts were of the sphere rolling by itself, making noises and vibrating. So <laughs> from an article in Wonderful Engineering, Terry, the son of Antoine and Jerry Betts, was playing guitar and found that the sphere reacted to the sound of the guitar and made a <gasps> throbbing noise, which scared the family dog. Things took an even odder turn when they were sitting on the floor and rolling the sphere towards one another. When it was sent in one direction... It would change direction midway and head back to the person who rolled it. What? So this is a sphere that plays favorites, I guess. Um, <laughs> in an April 1974 interview with the St. Petersburg Times, Gary Betts said, When the family dog got next to the sphere, she began to whimper and cover her ears with her paws, something she'd never seen her do before. The Betts family also suspected that solar radiations affected the sphere, which may have been why it reportedly moved intensely when the sun shone brightly. And eventually, the U.S. military actually got involved and got their hands on the sphere to analyze it for more answers. Oh, they took it. It's gone now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what ends up happening of the sphere. I'm pretty sure it was not returned. Mm. (laughs) It is not mentioned anywhere here in the article. But a expert from a research film in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, also examined the sphere and said that he found radio waves coming from it and a magnetic field around it. However, this is also Gary Betts' account to the St. Petersburg Times. So, you know, it's coming from the original family. Grain of salt. But then after that, yeah, the U.S. Navy analyzed the sphere at the Jacksonville Naval Air Station. And a naval spokesman told the St. Petersburg Times that the Navy's first X-ray attempts failed because its machine wasn't strong enough to penetrate penetrate the steel, but two subsequent tests showed the contents of the globe. And they said, I don't know who who manufactured it, but I say it came from the earth. We do know it is not an explosive and presents no hazard. Then the Betts family sent the sphere to astronomer and renowned ufologist J. Allen Hynek for examination, but he also agreed the object was man-made. So I guess the family was getting the sphere back because the U.S. military and Navy and scientists were like, eh, it's it's, it's a ball. Right. It's a toy. Somebody made it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody made it, but why? A playful Roomba? Like, <laughs> <laughs> very early era Roomba. I mean, that would be impressive for the 1970s. Yeah, it would. Uh, it would. So, after the Navy examined the sphere and identified the steel composition, among other facts, the ball was conclusively compared with a stainless steel ball kept in stock by a Jacksonville equipment supply company. Upon seeing news reports of the mystery sphere, the president of the company that created those types of balls, Robert Edwards, showed a reporter a Bell & Howell stainless steel ball that was almost exactly the same size as the sphere. Mm. Edwards says, I'm not saying that this thing didn't come from outer space because I've never seen it. All I'm saying is that the physical description of it matches exactly the type of ball we have in stock. Yeah, but I mean, is it going to switch directions when kids are playing with it? Is it going to make a dog put its paws over its ears and whine? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's very strange. And as for the noted behaviors of the sphere, these have been repeated and festooned with extra details over the last nearly 50 years. And experts say that in reality, the sphere was probably just rolling on an uneven floor. (laughs) At the end of the day, it's unlikely that even an advanced alien technology would use an earth steel alloy uh, 431 which is used in aircraft and things like fasteners and bolts uh, Mm -hmm. that remains unblemished on the long extremely hot fall to earth 
So not even a solid steel ball could make it into the atmosphere and remain unblemished unless it was teleported. That's my speculation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or it but, could have been trash. I mean, it could have been dropped out of another aircraft that, you know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. The UFO is like, what do we, why did we steal this ball from this factory? Totally It looks useless. shiny, useless. <laughs> yeah, let's get rid of it. It was a souvenir uh, and then the parents were just like, stop it, get rid of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's easy to see how a regular family in Florida would decide a strange object in their yard had some kind of improbable properties. And the 1970s were also a heyday of belief in things like UFOs, as well Mm. as new religious movements and Americanized transcendental meditation, which was a real heady mix and time period for people to develop some wild ideas. Well, and I mean, the entire thing could be a hoax. Like the family could have said, oh, we're going to get some parts and we're going to put it together. But then you would think, well, why wouldn't he license this really cool technology that can change directions on the floor if he's really got something that can do that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the pet rock was huge in the 70s. Maybe this was like my alien pet rock. There we go. (laughs) Optimize it, right? Could have been a (laughs) moneymaker. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, Matt Simon at Wired.com has made my day because he has brought us an article about cyborg drones. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, or, you know, probably fortunately, actually, shows you where my priorities are. The biological component is not human. We're not talking about flying robocops. These drones were developed by Melanie Anderson at the University of Washington, and they are specialized for detecting odors. The organic body parts that they have stolen for their own use are actually moth antenna. Whoa. So, yeah. She has nicknamed her Frankenmoth creation, and this is absolutely true, the Smellicopter. And she hopes that it will one day be useful for detecting bombs or possibly human survivors in areas where it's dangerous for even rescue dogs to go. Mm. The way it works is that the antenna of the hawk moth Manduka sexta are, strictly speaking, part of its nervous system. And so the way the antenna communicate with the moth's brain is through electrical signals, just like our neurons work. What that means is it's actually quite easy to cut the antenna off, hook them up to a little wire and then program a circuit to respond to the electrical signals that it's giving off. Wow. Anderson says it's really no more complicated than a heart monitor, which picks up the electrical signal of your heartbeat and translates that into a digital line on a screen and a beeping noise. And once you have a reliable yes-no electrical signal, you can program a machine to do pretty much anything you want in response to that on-off signal. So in order to translate the signal into a seeking movement, she programmed her smellicopters with the same flying techniques that actual moths use when they smell a flower nearby. The movement is described as crosswind casting, where you pick up a smell, you surge toward it for a short distance, and then you sort of rotate a little bit left and right to rechart your course toward the strongest direction of the smell and then surge forward again. So it's a sort of constant course correction that moths Mm -hmm. do and that these drones now do. A moth also increases its sensitivity with the physics of its wings. Apparently, they circulate the air around the antenna and give a better impression of where a slight smell may be coming from. Oh, kind of like wafting, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Anderson says the four copter wings of the drones actually serve the same purpose. So it helps that it's on a little flying thing. The smellicopters are also equipped with lasers to avoid objects in their path. And in lab tests, they've been able to locate the source of a smell 100% of the time. Whoa. So, yeah, they're incredibly effective. So far, the scent they're seeking has been only flowers because evolutionarily, that's what the moths are programmed to respond to. Mm. So now they're experimenting with gene modification to create moths that are sensitive to other compounds so they can then rip off their antenna for science. Aw. Yeah. (laughs) 
They do know that they cold stun them before they do that. I don't. It, it's unclear whether the moths actually die or whether they're just sort of in a moth coma. I mean, what kind of life is it for a moth to live without antenna, though? I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't think he's living very long after that, anyway. Right. And a moth's sense of smell is already so sensitive that they can pick up molecules in a parts per trillion concentration. But Anderson says they could theoretically make moths that are even more sensitive than that because right now, moths antenna have lots of different protein receptors to pick up different types of smells. And if they made a moth with just one kind of protein receptor, we would basically be dedicating all of their smelling resources toward that one Mm. precise thing. So Mm -hmm. we could actually make some really effective tools if we wanted to, I guess. <laughs> like <laughs> super specific it. smellicopters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You could get different ones. One's for bombs, one's for human remains. Who knows? <sighs> there are some drawbacks to the current design. Once removed, the moth antenna only live for about two hours on average. Aww. But if they're refrigerated, they can be kept alive for up to a week. Which still doesn't seem like a lot, but as co-author Thomas Daniel points out, that's still easier to store and disseminate than coronavirus vaccines. So, (laughs) sort of useful. (laughs) And meanwhile, the two-hour thing isn't really an issue because the drone batteries only last about 10 minutes. So, until we make more improvements on the weight versus battery life issue that's sort of inherent in drones, the two hours of antenna life is plenty to work with for now. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like all modern articles, it's got some great videos. They show the physical attachment process of the little antenna sliding onto the wire, as well as some footage of the drone seeking out a smell across a room. So it's very cool. I hesitate to think about the factory of moth birthing that we're going to get in order to, you know, mass generate these things. I mean, I'm also imagining refrigerated trucks pulling up to disaster sites and, (laughs) you know, people in suits unpacking their drones and sliding on the antenna moth. It's cool and really weird and a little unsettling all at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, it does. On the one hand, it feels like a nod to, hey, nature is better at this than we are. But also, we're just sort of taking it and using it for our own purposes. So maybe we're the best anyway. Like, (laughs) I don't know. It's it's hard to determine who comes out on top. I mean, if we're engineering the moths already, why can't we just follow the moths? Like, just set them free in the area and then just see where they go, right? I mean, wouldn't that work? Uh, yeah, theoretically. I mean, maybe maybe if you get so far away, there's a camera on the drone so the camera can or it's yeah. got GPS coordinates or something. But yeah, mm-hmm. it feels like you don't necessarily have to mutilate them. Yeah. I mean, I'm no moth drone expert or anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a good case for like biomimicry to come into play, too. Maybe we can fabricate something that is an analog of the moth antenna without having to harvest moth antenna. Maybe. But it feels like breeding moths might be easier than that. I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's so dark. <laughs> Not kind, but easy. <laughs> it's the human way. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Seems like we've got a bit of a theme here because Business Insider reports Japan is developing wooden satellites to send into orbit by 2023 to cut down on space junk. Wow. Like made of wood? Made of wood. <laughs> that feels just sort of inherently impossible. I'm sure you're going to tell me why it's possible, but I'm just, I, I'm immediately like, no, that's silly. <laughs> well, you know, they're they're developing them to see if it's possible. So mm-hmm. we're, we're still in early stages, but it's happening. Kyoto University is teaming up with a Japanese forestry company 
to develop wooden satellites to shoot into orbit by 2023. This is so steampunk, I can't even believe it. <laughs> um, a Kyoto University professor and Japanese astronaut, Takao Doi, told the BBC that the advantage of a wooden satellite is that if it were to fall out of orbit and burn up on reentry, it would not release as many harmful particles as metal satellites. Quote, we are very concerned with the fact that all the satellites which re-enter the Earth's atmosphere burn and create tiny alumina particles, which will float in the upper atmosphere for many years, mm -hmm. which can eventually affect the environment of the Earth, right? Sure. So Kyoto University and Sumitomo Forestry plan to experiment with how well different types of wood withstand extreme conditions on Earth with the intent to develop a wood that could take wild fluctuations in temperature and sunlight. So we may not have the exact wood prototype already growing on Earth, but let's see what can withstand really extreme stuff in the hopes that it might be able to actually exist in outer space. Hmm. And this is because space junk and debris are growing concerns among experts, right? And so even though estimates vary, right now they're believing there are about 760,000 objects larger than a centimeter currently in orbit. Well, so, but if the wooden satellites are up there, say there's two wooden satellites up there and they crash into each other, there's still a lot of space junk. There's all the wooden splinters and everything in orbit. It's only once they try to re-enter the atmosphere that they burn up, right? Well, yeah, and it's not trying to re-enter the atmosphere. Like, if there's a collision and they get caught in the orbit, they're just sucked down and then dissolve into these metal particles that really screw up with the environment. Yeah, we'll just move from acid rain to metal rain, which, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. it's different anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I still feel like a splinter in the finger of an astronaut at 80,000 miles an hour is, is still going to be a problem. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be helpful. Nobody wants that. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from discovermagazine.com and it's titled MSG isn't bad for you according to science. Yay! Good. I I'm hopeful. It's yeah. delicious. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> so, Japanese chemist Kikunai Ikeda had an obsession a flavor he couldn't quite put his finger on kept showing up in his meals, whether he was eating cheeses and tomatoes in Germany or dashi, a broth he knew from home. And after several years of investigating the savory quality, Ikeda proposed in 1909 that the sensation was a fifth taste, one he dubbed umami. Mm -hmm. He found that the flavor came from a compound called glutamate. And when you merge that with sodium, it can add the umami taste to something as plain as a glass of water. And eventually, he and his business partner produced the sodium and glutamate combination for consumers who wanted to infuse their food with that taste, and it was monosodium glutamate, or MSG. And not only has research failed to connect MSG to any ill symptoms or health problems, the flavor agent is one of the most widely consumed food additives around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By 1969, the U.S. was producing 58 million pounds of MSG a year. Wow. And incorporating Ooh. it into TV dinners, cereals, condiments, and more. And that's pounds of what you would essentially add to stuff as salt. That's pretty wild. Right. That's a right. lot of right. stuff when every meal only needs a little sprinkle. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so despite the ingredient appearing organically in common foods and manufacturers adding it into Western dietary staples, a letter about Chinese restaurant syndrome published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1968 sparked worries about ingesting MSG. The author, identified as Robert Homan Kwok, reported feeling numbness in the back of his neck and general weakness after eating at Chinese restaurants and suggested that a potential culprit could be the MSG added to the dishes. 
and the list of supposed symptoms attributed to MSG grew in the following decades to include headaches, sweating, nausea, and chest pains. And as a result, panic about how Chinese restaurateurs use the additive grew too. In New York, health authorities wrote letters targeting Chinese food producers, warning them to keep MSG levels low, while no such letters went to any other food producers. Yeah, it was and, a super racist thing at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it really was. And research has not backed up claims that physical symptoms develop after eating MSG. Study participants given MSG or a placebo capsule are typically just as likely to get headaches or numbness. Uh, one study of 60 individuals found that two people who had ingested MSG broth felt tightness or numbness, but also so did six people who had coffee and spiced <laughs> tomato juice, which right? did not contain any MSG. Yeah. You know, it's almost like a lot of different foods can cause various inflammatory responses. No. And there's a whole nother realm of dietary nutrition that we need to be thinking about. But that's my speculation. <laughs> Even studies that did find some correlation between MSG consumption and physical effects only turned up evidence that was weak at best. For instance, researchers who recorded the responses of 130 people who thought that they were sensitive to MSG found that some individuals may show more symptoms when eating the ingredient without any other food, but when participants ingested the MSG serving as part of their breakfast, their symptoms disappeared. So almost like a reverse placebo or a nagibo effect, I think they call it. Nagibo. Um, <laughs> I like yeah. that. <laughs> Despite this research, the consequences of consuming MSG still seems real for many Americans, uh, including my mom, actually. She's always like, oh, don't eat that. That is so much MSG, whatever. <laughs> a 2018 survey of U.S. consumers showed that respondents still had negative opinions of the ingredient, even though some people were confused about the difference between MSG and regular table salt. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think at the very least we can say it's definitively not worse than any of the other stuff that we constantly eat all the time. Like, yeah, if you're yeah. going to be concerned about that, you got to be concerned about a lot of things you're putting in your body. Absolutely. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've always heard of some people who were aware of this research, just like have MSG, like table salt. And I don't know, I might order one and see. We what used it's to like, have it in our pantry growing up. And I didn't really know what it was at the time. But like, I had this weird snacky habit where like, I would pour like a small amount of sugar or salt into my palm and just kind of lick it out just for flavor. Mm -hmm. And one time I found the MSG to and I was like, what is this? I can't stop. It's so delicious. <laughs> and your addiction was set. I mean, it makes everything delicious on its own. It is delicious. I'm going to add some to my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, SciTech Daily wants us to know that new research reveals exercising one arm has twice the benefits. What? So, yeah. Huh? And this is really cool, actually. It has some very cool implications. So a study from Edith Cowan University has demonstrated that exercising just one arm will build muscle mass in the other arm without ever moving it. ECU's Professor Ken Nasaka says that the findings challenge conventional rehabilitation methods, obviously, and could improve outcomes for post-injury and stroke patients. So it turns out you can't just do any old kind of exercises. The study found one type of exercise in particular called eccentric exercise works best. These are opposed to concentric exercises, which is actually what most of us think about when our, we think about a typical workout. So in a concentric exercise, the muscle is tightening, like when you curl up your bicep with a dumbbell. Uh -huh. The eccentric exercise is the careful lowering of the dumbbell after you've lifted it, controlling the movement as the muscle lengthens again. So other eccentric exercises would include lowering yourself down onto a chair or walking downstairs instead of up them. Uh -huh. The study involved 30 participants who had one arm immobilized for a minimum of eight hours a day for four weeks. 
The group was then split into three, with some performing no exercise, some performing a mix of eccentric and concentric exercises, and the rest performing eccentric exercises only. The group who used a heavy dumbbell to perform only eccentric exercise on their active arm showed an increase in strength and a decrease in muscle atrophy or wastage in their immobilized arm. The eccentric group had just 2% muscle wastage in their immobilized arm compared to 28% loss for those who did no exercise. They don't say how much wastage was seen in the group that did both, but it was apparently less than the group who only did the eccentric exercises. So, I mean, what this basically means is that to get the full benefit, you would need either a physical therapist or a really cleverly designed exercise machine that somehow took over the concentric half of the movement for you. Like somebody lifts the dumbbell up to your shoulder each time and then you only lower it. Which could be accomplished in a hospital setting if you're getting physical therapy, you've got your arm in a cast, whatever. This is something in particular that somebody could help you with. And of course, since the study only looked at arms and the elbow flexor in particular, more studies will need to be done on legs or situations where people are more generally immobilized. But basically, if your arm is in a cast, you could just like go bowling a lot with the other arm and see some benefit. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to have to write that one down. And if I ever injure my one arm, I'll be like, okay, it's time to set up a bowling rink in my apartment. Get a little bowling alley (laughs) down the hallway. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if you're doing a mix of concentric and eccentric, the benefits are not as pronounced, but it's still more of a benefit than if you're just doing concentric by itself, right? Yes. Yes, definitely. So, you know, I mean, okay. any, any type of exercise with the arm you've got left, I don't think it will actively strengthen your arm past what your arm already was, but it will mm-hmm. definitely prevent the wastage of that arm as it's unable to move for however long it's able to sit there. Huh. That's amazing. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. And also, I'd like to say I'm I'm very proud of everyone for not making any uh, one-arm movement jokes because... <laughs> <laughs> They popped into my mind, but that might just be me. (laughs) The joke was made, and it was made by you by not making the joke and addressing that. That's that's, that's how I get away with that. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. Well, Ars Technica is ready to talk about the heavy-hitting topics because we're going to talk about virgin births, specifically parthenogenesis, how females from some species can reproduce without males. Hey, yeah. Yo. Okay. You know. okay. Animal <laughs> virgin birth. All right. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, every myth has an origin or some kind of real life analog. But the species that do this, at least documented and known in science, are somewhat limited. They cite an example a while back where an Asian water dragon had hatched from an egg at the Smithsonian National Zoo. And the keepers were shocked because the mother had never been with a male water dragon. So they did some genetic testing and they discovered that the newly hatched female born on August 24th, 2016 had been produced through parthenogenesis. Hmm. Now, it's a Greek word that means virgin creation, but it specifically refers to female asexual reproduction. And it's surprisingly common throughout the tree of life and is found in a variety of organisms, including plants, insects, fish, reptiles, and even birds. And because mammals, including human beings, require certain genes to come from sperms, mammals are incapable of parthenogenesis, unless you, you know, ascribe to certain religious texts or religious beliefs. So Sure, but they're still not claiming that it was some sort of scientific process. So they're, they're outside that realm anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the vast majority of animal species do reproduce sexually, but females of some species are able to produce eggs containing all the genetic material required for reproduction. 
And the females of these species, which include some wasps, crustaceans, and lizards, reproduce only through parthenogenesis and are called obligate parthenogens. Hmm. A larger number of species experience spontaneous parthenogenesis, best documented in animals kept in zoo settings, like that Asian water dragon we talked about. And spontaneous parthenogens typically reproduce sexually, but may have occasional cycles that produce developmentally ready eggs. And they've also learned that spontaneous parthenogenesis may be a heritable trait, meaning females that suddenly experience parthenogenesis might be more likely to have daughters that can do the same. Well, you would assume so, because I think that aren't the eggs they create basically clones of themselves, right? Because there's no added genetic material. I guess that's true. They must be clones of themselves. There's a piece later that kind of indicates that under certain amounts of stress that Mm. they will resort to sexual reproduction, I guess, to add a bit of diversity just to produce hopefully stronger offspring. But it's obviously, you know, we're talking about it so far as if it's like totally easy, a thing that happens naturally. But for parthenogenesis to happen, there are a few things that have to successfully occur in succession. So first, females have to be able to create egg cells without stimulation from sperm or mating. But then secondly, the eggs produced by females need to begin to develop on their own, forming an early stage embryo, and then finally they have to hatch. Alternatively, the egg can be faux-fertilized by leftover cells from the egg production process known as polar bodies. So whichever method kicks off the development of the embryo will ultimately determine the level of genetic similarity between Mm. mother and offspring. So it's not always going to be a clone. Okay. And the events that trigger parthenogenesis are not fully understood, but they do appear to include environmental change. So like I kind of mentioned, in species that are capable of both sexual reproduction and parthenogenesis, like aphids, stressors like crowding or predation may cause females to switch from parthenogenesis to sexual reproduction, but not the other way around. And there's an example of at least one type of freshwater plankton. If the water's too salty, it can also cause the switch. Hmm. So even though spontaneous parthenogenesis appears to be rare, it does provide some benefits to the partner who can achieve it. In some cases, (laughs) this really blew my mind, it can allow females to generate their own mating partners. Oh, Oh, so they can give birth to (laughs) to a male even though, wow. (laughs) <laughs> right. They can, <laughs> they can give birth to a male who can then be a future mating partner. This is a little Game of Thrones, but whatever. Um, between 1997 and 1999, a checkered garter snake kept at the Phoenix Zoo gave birth to two male offspring that ultimately survived to adulthood. Now, if a female mated with her parthenogenetically produced son, that would constitute inbreeding. So my <laughs> initial shudder reaction feels super validated You're correct. Here. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and while inbreeding can result in a host of genetic problems, from an evolutionary perspective, it's better than having no offspring at all. Sure, it's better so than dying. Abil- yeah. <laughs> right. Like if your species is going to die off unless this is the way to go, I mean, you know, it's kind of a Hail Mary, right? <laughs> no pun intended here. So to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, The ability of females to produce male offspring through parthenogenesis also suggests that asexual reproduction in nature may be more common than scientists had ever realized. Current research on parthenogenesis seeks to understand why some species are capable of both sex and parthenogenesis and whether occasional sexual reproduction might be enough for a species to survive. 
we'll know more. <laughs> I feel a little bad for the male aphids because it's like, you know, they don't normally get to have sex unless the entire colony is threatened. Normally the women are like, no, nah, we don't need you. And it's only when it's like, uh-oh, a predator's taken out most of our colony. I guess we'll mate with you now. Like, it just feels, it feels very unkind. It really puts into perspective our ethical quandaries about, you know, cloning and out in the animal kingdom. They're just like, I don't know. Like, it's fine. Might make myself today. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> Might create a baby and then mate with it. Whatever. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it does sort of pose a future, though, where, like, you know, if Kim Kardashian wanted to have children, she didn't need Kanye West. I may support that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it feels very exclusionary. I don't know that a clone of Kim Kardashian is really what we're going for. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but are we also trying to go for the offspring of Kim Kardashian and Kanye West? Right, right, right. It's one of those, you know, it's species dying out, or do you go with the uncomfortable choice? You know? Eh. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Here's a short one from TheGuardian.com. Siberia permafrost yields well-preserved Ice Age woolly rhino. Ooh. So, Wait, a woolly rhino? A woolly rhino, yeah. And uh, there's a picture right here, and it really just kind of looks like, basically like a rhino, but it's much rounder. And I think you can see some of the matted fur, and there's ice on it. And then they also, I believe there are parts of it that had the insides exposed, and that's a little gross, but also interesting because it's very frozen. (laughs) But anyways, so a well-preserved Ice Age woolly rhino with many of its internal organs still intact was recovered from the permafrost in Russia's extreme northern region. And Russian media reported on Wednesday that the carcass was revealed by thawing permafrost in Yakutia in August. Scientists are waiting for ice roads in the Arctic region to become passable to deliver the animal to a laboratory for studies in January. And the carcass is among the best preserved specimens of the woolly rhino found to date. Most of the soft tissues are still intact, including parts of the intestines, some thick hair, and a lump of fat. And its horn was also found just right next to it, which is pretty wild. In recent years, as the ice inside the permafrost increasingly melts across vast areas of Siberia because of global warming, there have been significant discoveries of mammoths, woolly rhinos, and cave lion cubs. A foal, known as the Lena horse, alive 42,000 years ago, was found in the permafrost in the Batagaika crater in Yakutia, Siberia. Yakutia 24 TV quoted Valery Plotnikov, a paleontologist with the regional branch of the Russian Academy of Sciences, saying that the woolly rhino was probably three or four years old when it died, and it does look quite tiny, and he said that the young rhino could have drowned. Scientists dated the carcass from 20,000 to 50,000 years ago, and more precise dating will be possible once radiocarbon studies can be done at a laboratory. Mm -hmm. And it was found on the bank of the Tirikityak River, uh, probably butchered that, in the (laughs) Abiesk district, close to the area where another young woolly rhino was recovered in 2014, and researchers dated that specimen, which they called Sasha, at 34,000 years old. So maybe they knew each other. Right. Uh, maybe <laughs> they drowned together. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's a little concerning. Like I feel like they're burying the lead here about melting permafrost. Yeah, a that bit. seems kind of like the major that, issue here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's cool that we get to see a woolly rhino, but like, I'd like to keep the ice and all the deadly ancient preserved diseases inside <laughs> of it uh, intact. But you know, whatever. Cool, cool discoveries for paleontologists. <laughs> That's right. The silver lining yeah. on an otherwise very dark cloud. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, this one comes from The Guardian. 
The title is Squatters Issue Death Threats to Archaeologists Who Discovered Oldest City in the Americas. So what? Yeah, it's it's a fun one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Ruth Shady is a celebrated Peruvian archaeologist who first discovered the ancient city of Corral in 1994, which is believed to be the oldest center of civilization in the Americas. UNESCO describes the site as exceptionally well-preserved, with a complex architectural design and organic material found at the site has been carbon dated back to 2627 BCE. They've also found musical instruments made of animal and bird bones and evidence of the cultivation of multicolored cotton used in textiles. Like they didn't dye the cotton, they used agricultural techniques to breed different colors of the plant itself. So, you know, pretty advanced civilization. Yeah. They're trying to dig into it and get some more information. But unfortunately for Ruth Shady, someone was already living in the area and they're not so keen on her team digging it up. They're believed to belong to a single extended family. And they claim that the land was given to them in the 1970s during Peru's controversial agrarian land reform, which was pushed through by a leftist military dictatorship that is obviously no longer in power. But they don't have any actual title to the surrounding land. And every organization that has tried to adjudicate the claims has concluded that the land is owned by the Peruvian state. And meanwhile, other people have been gaining titles as they purchase various plots near the discovery, which has raised the local prices for the land from $5,000 per hectare to as much as $50,000 per hectare. So it's not just the scientists. There's sort of a flood of people moving in that's pissing off this large family that's been living out there. It's important to note that the squatters were not initially being displaced. They just lived nearby, but they just didn't want anyone around them at all, scientists or otherwise. And they've begun waging a pretty aggressive war on the new residents. Shady, Mm. who is 73 years old, says that they have sent death threats to her, as well as numerous workers on the site, including the site's lawyer, who they told, quote, if he continued to protect her, they would kill both of them and bury them five meters below the ground. Which is industrious. You know, get them real deep. Uh, (laughs) Oh, jeez. That's specific. And like I said, the site was discovered in 1994. So this has been going on a long time. In 2003, the family mounted a full assault on the site with guns, and Shady was apparently shot in the chest, which (gasps) somehow didn't deter her. She lived, and she's like, no, we're going to keep our archaeological work going. Police have been generally involved since then, but the family is playing the long game, and the police generally seem to feel like they have better things to do than patrol an archaeological site every day for 25 years, right? Recently, the assaults have stepped up again. The squatters poisoned Shady's dog, which is very sad and (gasps) uncalled for. And in July of last year, squatters took control of one of the heavy diggers on site and used it to deliberately knock down a bunch of adobe walls and destroy ancient ceramics, tombs containing mummies, textiles, and household remains before police and the site staff could get in there and stop them. Uh, So, you know, on the one hand, it's like, I feel for them. They didn't have neighbors for a long time, and now they do, and they don't like it. On the other hand, I don't think destroying the site is going to make the point they think it is. No. Shady notes, perhaps pointedly, that the civilization they're uncovering seems to have been very, very peaceful. We have not found even a single walled settlement. So (laughs) I guess she's saying that wherever this family is descended from, it is not this civilization that they're uncovering. (laughs) I mean, props to her. You get shot in the chest and your dog is poisoned and you're like, no, I'm staying here and we're going to uncover these artifacts. It's, oh, yeah. We've all seen John Wick. We know how this goes. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> She's a 73-year-old lady, John Wick. <laughs> I mean, I would watch that. I would watch like a trilogy of that. Are you kidding oh, me? That would be good. Heck, yeah, right? man. We've got the CG for that now. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to include The Milky Way Gets a New Origin Story, Tiny Nuclear Reactors Can Save American Energy, and What Does History Smell Like? So all that and more can be found on daminteresting.com. If you'd like to email us with any feedback, you can do so at feedback at di.show. You can also go to our Patreon to support us and keep us going. We're at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 